This week on Making Contact. If we were all united in saying those with the least resources will be at the top of our agenda, that's who we're going to ensure rights for first. I think that, you know, a woman's right to choose is part of healthcare reform. Contraception um, is part of healthcare. Um, proper sex education um, should be available to those who actually want it. While lawmakers in Washington mull over the nuts and bolts of healthcare reform, advocates are concerned that a woman's fundamental right to reproductive health services is endangered. On this edition, Stupak, the Hyde Amendment, and religion. We take a look at some of the threats to abortion access more than 35 years after Roe v. Wade legalized a woman's right to choose. I'm Tina Rubio, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Healthcare coverage should be something we can rely on when we need it most, and that includes the option of having an abortion. Yet for more than 30 years, even in the face of Roe v. Wade, that hasn't been the case for many low-income women, women of color, and young women. Stephanie Poggi is the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds. She joins me now from Boston to discuss the Hyde Amendment and its impact on a woman's right to have an abortion. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about National Network of Abortion Funds? Basically, the National Network of Abortion Funds does two things. We work to help women all across the country and actually uh, internationally to pay for abortions if women do not have the money to do so. And we also work to change things for the long term. So we're working to change policies and lift barriers at the state and national level so that women, you know, one day, every single woman in this country will be able to decide for herself if she wants to have a child or not and will be able to make her own decision about the health of, of herself and her family and her future. Can you start by giving us some background about Hyde and what kind of impact has it had these 30 plus years? Well, the Hyde Amendment was passed uh, just three years after Roe v. Wade made abortion legal across the United States. And the Hyde Amendment was the first uh, and it continues to this day to be the biggest, most devastating attack on abortion rights in the United States. Basically, what it did was say that federal Medicaid funding will not cover an abortion. So if a woman needs any other kind of care and she's receiving Medicaid, she can get it. She can get prenatal care. She can be sterilized. She can, you know, in many states, she can get birth control, but she cannot make her own decision about having an abortion. So it took that away from poor women. And many states, 33, followed suit and banned state Medicaid funding of abortion. So in practice, we only have about 15 states right now that provide state Medicaid funding for abortion. But what it really meant was that what's supposed to be a constitutional right under Roe v. Wade is only a right for those who have economic resources. So if you don't have the money to exercise your constitutional right, you don't have that right at all. What was abortion access like before the Hyde Amendment? Well, in the years between Roe v. Wade and the, and the Hyde Amendment's implementation, um, hundreds of thousands of low-income women were able to get abortions, you know, through, uh, through Medicaid coverage. You know, so you go from illegal abortion, which, you know, as you can imagine, 
you know, primarily affected the poor and women of color because women who had resources could either, you know, in 1970, they could start going to New York, you know, before that they could leave the country. But many, you know, so the, the poorest women already felt, you know, more than anyone else, the brunt of, of illegal abortion. So once Roe v. Wade passes, it's really poor women and women of color who actually have the greatest benefit because they, you know, for the first time really um, can have their, their rights and their dignity secured. So in those first years, Medicaid actually paid for a third to a half of all abortions in the United States. I, I think there was a lot of hope initially with the onset of this new Congress, that there'd be a real opportunity to expand access to family planning services and medically accurate sex education. I mean, for the first time ever, Congress is not only being led by a woman, but also a strong pro-choice Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, from California. But as we saw so deftly play out in both the House and Senate health care bills at the end of 2009, it appears the Hyde Amendment will be in full effect. Can you first tell us what the Stupak-Pitts Amendment was about, and then where are we now in regards to the proposed federal health care legislation? Well, the Stupak-Pitts Amendment, which is which has passed the House, um, and as you know, there's also the Nelson Amendment, which is in the Senate. So there's two different severe abortion restrictions in the two versions of health care reform that we have right now. You know, and in a way, what they have in common is much more, you know, than, than what separates them. They're both really onerous, really draconian, enormous setbacks um, for, for women, you know, every single woman in this country. But of course, we'll take the biggest toll, at least initially, on women who might receive a subsidy from the federal government for their health care. So Stupak Pitts basically said, uh, you know, any health care insurance, any insurance program that wants to be able to offer their product to anyone who's getting a subsidy cannot offer abortion coverage. So basically, you know, which, which insurance companies are going to say, oh, we don't want to be eligible for all the millions of people that are that are going to get a subsidy. So pretty much that meant that abortion coverage would be eliminated from the new health care reform. And, you know, if health care works, reform works the way it's supposed to, all of us are supposed to end up in the exchange where it's more competitive, you know, ideally, and, and costs are lowered. So eventually, everyone who currently has insurance coverage could lose it. So, you know, clearly, that's a terrible, terrible loss. And it's an expansion of the Hyde Amendment. Um, what we see on the Senate side, which people are saying is is a better compromise, is actually quite terrible as well, completely unacceptable. And what the Senate says is that states may ban insurance coverage of abortion. So what we're going to see is many, many states just banning abortion coverage altogether. You know, states that are already conservative, that already restrict abortion access, that already only have one clinic, that already have poor social services, will very likely just ban abortion coverage altogether. And then the other piece that they added was that people who want to have abortion coverage in their plans will need to, employers and women would need to write two checks. So every single month, you know, you're going to have the bad abortion check and then the rest of healthcare reform. So it's also, you know, I think um, very clearly on the part of the anti-abortion, anti-woman, anti-human rights forces, an effort to say abortion is not part of healthcare. You know, that's what they're trying to say. And, and they want to further stigmatize the procedure and further stigmatize women who, you know, who are trying to do the best they can in their lives and make their decisions and take care of their families. And where are we now in this struggle? 
Well, the there's a version of a conference committee that's been set up that's trying to reconcile the two versions. And, you know, groups, pro-choice organizations are actively trying to make sure that neither one of these is implemented. You know, but I think what we see is a real deep, fundamental um, lack of understanding, I think, in Congress, you know, including among those who are democratic and who are ostensibly pro-choice, and on the part of the administration of what, what women's rights mean, about what access to abortion means, and what a constitutional right is. I don't think that many people know how much an abortion actually costs. Can you tell us? Yes, an abortion in the first trimester generally costs about $400. I mean, that can range from 350 to 600, but I would say generally 400 to 450 would be would be the general range. And that's a lot of money to come up with next week. You know, and, and sometimes when I talk to different groups of people who've never found themselves in that situation, I say picture what's the amount that if you had to come up with next week to safeguard your family and your life and your future, you know, what's that amount? And can you, you know, what would be the amount that would be just too much? You know, for some people, it would be $400. They can't imagine coming up with that. They certainly don't have it in their bank account. For some people, it might be $10,000 because they have that much money. But picture that amount and picture not being able to come up with that and, and what you would need to do. So that's in the first trimester. Once you get into the second trimester, the costs go up every single week. So most of the women who are having later abortions are in that situation precisely because they don't have that $400 in the first trimester. Why is it so vitally important to turn the tide on this particular piece of legislation? You know, we, we understand at the National Network of Abortion Funds because we work with women every single day who are facing you know, enormous barriers because of the Hyde Amendment, we understand what it will mean to have an expansion of those barriers, to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more likely women who are coming to us for support. You know, we know this is completely untenable. So we have been working, you know, for many years to try to raise awareness about what the Hyde Amendment means, what the impact is, and to build a strategy that can lift barriers at the state level and that can eventually lift these federal funding bans, which are discriminatory, which are unjust, which are, you know, issues of racial justice as well as economic justice and women's rights. Uh, you know, we've had a real setback in healthcare reform. You know, we've had a real setback. And what we need to do is come together again. We need to look at what the political environment is. Um, we need to really reaffirm that connection between a right and, and the ability to exercise it. We need to say that women of color and poor women and young women are going to be at the center of the fight. You know, if we were all united in saying those with the least resources will be at the top of our agenda, that's who we're going to ensure rights for first. Those who have the least ability to, to exercise them right now, then we would be in a really different place. And I think we can get to that place, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take grassroots work and it's going to take state level work. And, you know, so we're going to bring everybody together. We're going to look at some short-term strategies, and we're going to look at movement building and, and the long-term long fight and all the allies that we need to bring together also from other movements to try to really understand what abortion does mean in women's lives and how, how much we stand to lose if we, don't, if we don't fight together. Stephanie, talk to me a little bit about your current campaign. So the 30 Years is Enough campaign, we started that campaign in 2006 um, at the 30-year anniversary of the Hyde Amendment. 
And we made a lot of progress over the last three years. We were able to you know, raise the awareness in Congress. We were able to get the, the pro-choice movement really talking about this issue, which they had not been doing for a long time, you know, except within groups like ours and except within women of color groups. So we really got many, many groups to say, yes, this needs to be part of what we're fighting for. Um, so, so, but now, you know, we're at a, we've done a lot of state level work, we've done some grassroots work, we've done some work with champions in Congress, and now it clearly has to be kicked up a huge level so that we can um, deal with the fallout from healthcare reform. You know, we don't know at this moment how much we're going to lose under healthcare reform in terms of women's access to abortion, but, you know, however that ends up, we're going to need to come together, we're going to need to look at that fallout, what it means for the states what it means nationally, and we're going to need to figure out who's going to take which piece of this and how we're going to move it forward. And what we're fighting for is for our whole movement to recommit to this as the number one priority. We've been talking to Stephanie Poggi. She's the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds. Stephanie, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. A 2008 Guttmacher Institute study shows one in three women in the U.S. will have an abortion in her lifetime. And national polling consistently shows the majority of Americans support a woman's right to choose. Yet it seems reality and public opinion are falling on deaf ears, with the recent legislative tide turning against legal abortion. Currently, half of the states across the U.S. are now enforcing parental consent or notification laws. Mandatory 24-hour waiting periods are now in effect in some states. And biased counseling laws force clinic staffers to promote childbearing to their patients. Each is designed to limit a woman's constitutionally protected right to have an abortion. We now hear from a young woman who shares her story about the decision she made to have an abortion and the impact it's had on her life. My name is Jenny. I'm 25 years old. When I was 21, I had an abortion. I was a senior at the time. It was May, so it was towards the end of the semester. It was right before finals when I realized that I was pregnant. I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to have an abortion. I talked about it before with my boyfriend. Neither of us were ready, and we both knew that. So I was lucky enough to have the support of my parents. I was able to call and talk about it with them. Neither of them were comfortable with it, exactly. It wasn't, you know, a call that I really looked forward to making or that I ever thought I would have to make to call my parents and tell them that I was pregnant and having an abortion. It wasn't something either of them wanted for me, but it wasn't something that either of them thought should be their decision. They knew that it was my decision to make and they were going to support whatever decision felt right for me. So I had the abortion covered by my insurance. I had insurance through my mom. And in Ohio, there's a 24-hour wait period. So in order to have an abortion, you need to first talk about abortion with the counselor, see if it's the right option for you, even though you've already decided it is and then 24 hours later return to actually have the abortion. For the abortion itself, I had two of my best friends come with me and they were there in the waiting room the whole time and they were able to drive me home and be there for me. 
about a year and a half later, I got a letter from the insurance company telling me that they were denying the claim, that they had decided that it wasn't an urgent procedure, and therefore I should have had it in California, which was where my insurance was based, that the insurance that I had in Ohio only counted for emergency or urgent care, and they didn't deem the abortion to be urgent. You know, there's multiple bits of research and studies that show that the longer that a woman waits, the more medical complications there are in having an abortion. Besides which, after I made the decision to have the abortion, having to carry it much longer than that just kind of feels like torture. It's urgent. When you make the decision, it becomes an urgent one, medically, emotionally. So the idea that I should have gotten on a plane and gone home to have the procedure was just obscene to me. And I was able to write a letter back to my insurance company, several letters, and eventually they deemed that the procedure was in fact considered urgent. That actually just happened a couple months ago in 2009, three years after the um, abortion itself. I was still fighting with the insurance company to have them pay for it. But they did pay for it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. I'm still with my boyfriend. We've been together now almost six years. And we will have children together someday, I imagine. I plan on it. I want to have kids with him, but I'm still not ready. <laughs> like, is it three, three years later? I'm still not there. And I'm really grateful that I have that time to keep working on our relationship and to keep doing things that I want to do for myself before I take on the role of being a mother. I'm getting a great education and I'm going to end up being a nurse in a couple years, and I'm, I feel really lucky that I was able to make that decision. It doesn't define who I am. Like, I'm, I don't define myself by someone who had an abortion. One in three women in America has an abortion, and I'm just one of many. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Women face a myriad of barriers when it comes to getting an abortion. Fewer clinics offering abortion services, a lack of trained abortion providers, and Medicaid restrictions, to name a few. And what about religion? No doubt, the Catholic Church has a powerful lobby, and it plays a huge role in influencing public policy and its followers. Many say that Vatican policies affect everyone, Catholic or not, by limiting the availability of reproductive health services around the world. The fact is, Catholic policy bans both contraception and abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. But Catholics for Choice, founded the same year Roe v. Wade was passed, serves as a voice for Catholics who believe that Catholic tradition supports a woman's legal and moral right to make decisions about her own reproductive health and sexuality. John O'Brien is the president of Catholics for Choice. He joins us now on the phone from Washington, D.C. John, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. 
Catholics for Choice believes that it's women and their families who pay the price every time theocracy trumps democracy in the debate over women's health care. What do you say to those Catholics who are unyieldingly opposed to women's reproductive freedoms? Well, I think one of the most important things to concentrate on is that it's interesting um, from Poland to Portugal, the Philippines, or Pittsburgh in the United States. Whenever Catholics are polled and whenever they're asked uh, what they believe about sexual and reproductive health, an overwhelming majority of Catholics have a very liberal view when it comes to the use of contraception to prevent unplanned pregnancy in the first instance, or indeed when it's necessary for a woman to have an abortion. And what we've seen the world over, we've seen Catholics, really the majority of Catholics, disagree with what the hierarchy has to say on these issues. Do you think Catholics' opinions would change if the papacy changed its own position regarding abortion rights and reproductive choice? I think that what's important is that when a legislator hears from um, a bishop, I think just as you know, a legislator hears from people who are um, representatives of labor unions or employers' um, representative groups, the first question a legislator has to ask is, is what they're saying factually correct? And the second is, who are they representing? And I think that the same criteria that's applied to whether it be an environmental lobby group um, or a trade lobby group, the same criteria is not applied to religious leaders. Religious leaders are getting a pass on this. And in reality, very often, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is not representing factually um, situations concerning sexual and reproductive health. And they certainly don't speak for um, constituents um, across the United States who are voters. So I think it's important that um, legislators really pay attention to how Catholics think and feel and how that affects the majority of people in the country, because we shouldn't um, create legislation uh, around the dictates of one particular religious view. Um, America is a country of many religions, and there's many people who have no religion. And we really need to create legislation for all of the people, not just um, because the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops have a strong lobby on Capitol Hill. And as a lot of us know, many low-income women rely solely on government-run programs for access to reproductive health care services. What impact do you think the Catholic's hierarchy's ban on contraception and abortion has had on women's lives, especially on the lives of low-income women? You know, people who have financial means will always be able to circumvent any prohibition. Um, but those who are poor are the ones who suffer. When you have to rely on the local hospital to secure um, your sexual and reproductive health services, if that local hospital is a Catholic-controlled hospital, they may receive taxpayer money um, to run the hospital, but um, very often um, they have some type of restrictions on what type of services they have available, and therefore people have to travel sometimes many miles, which is uh, sometimes a, a, a total impossibility for those who are poor to travel those miles and that distance. Um, in order to be able to access sexual and reproductive health services. So it, it's absolutely critical um, that those services be made available or, be, or that women be accommodated, especially poorer women. So what role did Catholics for Choice play in the recent federal health care debates? Um, we have been very active um, in both supporting the idea, because as a social justice um, organization, as an organization that's concerned about poorer people, and we are in favor of health care reform. And it looks like we're going to end up with just um, health insurance reform. 
Um, but even so, we believe that um, it can have a tremendously positive impact for the poorer folks um, in the United States of America. The sad um, part of it is that um, those who are anti-choice and those who, quite frankly, are against health care reform injected into this debate um, a concern, um, a, a false concern, a red herring, if you like, um, that um, federal funds, that taxpayer funds, would be used to fund abortions. We in the pro-choice community always knew that the health care debate was not going to result in an advance for abortion rights um, and services, which obviously we are committed to and would like to see. But what we've actually seen instead is that because of a weak Democratic Party, a Democratic Party that has many um, people elected in the last election cycle who are not in favor of the party's platform that supports a woman's right to choose, we've seen Democrats um, vote in favor of a Stupak Pitts Amendment in the House and the Nelson Amendment in the Senate. And these go beyond um, the idea of the Hyde Amendment um, in banning federal funds. They would actually not allow even people within um, insurance, um, private insurance arrangements um, to be able to access abortion um, easily. Um, and I think that that's a huge problem. It's the equivalent of, it's like passing an Americans with Disability Act and actually saying that it doesn't apply to partially sighted people. The idea that we could have health care or health insurance reform and discriminate against women's choices um, really beggars belief that it is truly health reform, and it certainly discriminates against women. It certainly will make um, it harder if, if they are successful in women um, being able to get abortion in certain circumstances. So how effective do you think the anti-choice lobby which includes, you know, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops or Catholics United and Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good has been in subordinating women's access to reproductive health services. I think that the um, those who are opposed to um, uh, sexual and reproductive health have been extraordinarily successful um, in the last number of years. Um, I think that part of the reason um, why the anti-choice lobby has been so successful is that after the election of John Kerry, I think that the Democratic Party experienced a major crisis of confidence. Um, some strategists in the party believed that the reason why John Kerry lost was because of contentious um, issues, one of the issues being a woman's right to choose um, there's the polling um, and the polling analysis um, didn't show that um, the reason why folks didn't vote for, for John Kerry was because of these issues. The polling analysis actually showed that John Kerry, in spite of the fact that many folks liked him, was not a candidate that resonated with the voters. It was as simple as that. But there was a certain cadre of um, strategists within the Democratic Party who decided that what they were going to do was that they were going to reach out to values-based voters. Um, and I think what that actually meant, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to values-based voters and indeed religious voters, um, but uh, some would argue that the polling would suggest that religious voters and, 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 and people of faith were always with the Democratic Party. Maybe not the um, loud fundamentalist preachers that you see on TV, but certainly people of faith across the United States had, had voted for um, the Democratic Party in a similar way that other people of faith had voted for the Republican Party. They didn't have a particular problem. What they did do, though, is they fielded, they, they fielded a, a number of more conservative Democratic candidates, um, some of whom do not support a woman's right to choose. And as a result of that, um, those candidates were elected, those candidates are in the House and in the Senate. 
And to some extent, um, what we've seen in recent times is those candidates um, driving what the position of the Democratic Party is on some of these um, issues around sexual and reproductive health. What is your vision for the future then regarding reproductive rights and access to abortion for all women? Now is the time um, that we really need to, um, in the pro-choice movement, um, we need to come together and have a visionary approach um, towards the future. The reality is that um, before Roe v. Wade, women in the United States died um, as a result of not being able to access um, a woman's right to choose. You know, they can pass all the laws that they like um, against abortion and restricting abortion, but women still need a right to choose. John O'Brien, President for Catholics for Choice, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. To hear full interviews with National Network of Abortion Funds, Stephanie Poggi, Catholics for Choice, John O'Brien, and a bonus interview with Guadalupe Rodriguez of Access, Women's Health Rights Coalition, log on to our website at radioproject.org. This program is funded in part by the Mary Wolford Foundation. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.